Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, Jack. Hello, Dennis. 100 years Foley. How are you? I'm pretty good. The Jingle Master. Jingle Master playing all the the greatest hits. Playing all the greatest hits jingles. All right. Well, uh, we just had a little while ago, we just had the, uh, the Senate vote, which... Uh, this was Chuck Schumer saying, we're going to codify Roe v. Wade. And they did not have the 50 votes uh, to do it. It's being reported by the cable uh, channels as it failed, which, you know, if you're if you're trying to be objective, you're not supposed to say that it failed. You're supposed to say it, there were this many votes for, this, this many votes against. But anyway, um, so they tried to... Uh, basically put into legislative action something that would uh, moot whatever the Supreme Court is going to do uh, about the Roe v. Wade decision, um, which now we think we know because of the leaked opinion. And we're going to talk about that uh, this afternoon. Um, Last night, the House approved $40 billion more. This is not $40 billion and counting. This This is another $40 billion. In aid to Ukraine, the vote in the House was 368 to 57. All of the 57 were Republicans. One of them was South Texas Congressman Chip Roy. And here's what he was saying about this bill, cut number nine. Think about it, Speaker. The gentleman from Maryland talked about protecting this institution or talked about this institution, but we got a $40 billion bill at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I haven't had a chance to review the bill. My staff is pouring over the pages trying to see what's in it. You want to talk about the institution? You want to talk about standing up alongside Ukraine? Why don't we actually have a debate on the floor of the People's House instead of the garbage of getting a $40 billion bill at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Not paid for, without having any idea what's really in it, with a massive slush fund that goes to the State Department, $13 billion, $8 billion for the Economic Support Fund, $110 million for embassy security. We've got $40 billion that is unpaid for, and you want to sit here and lecture this body about what we're going to do or not do about standing alongside Ukraine? Why don't we talk about the American people who are hurting, the wide open borders, the inflation that's killing people, the jobs that people can't get because of the cost of goods and services in this country. Sitting here and being lectured to when I don't even have time to look at a $40 billion unpaid bill. I make a motion to adjourn. So here's what's interesting to me. I, I, I support the Ukrainian people. Absolutely. I don't know anybody who doesn't. But... Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine was the least surprising thing Vladimir Putin could do. He's even invaded Ukraine before. The reason this is all hurry up, it's an emergency, is because our political leaders haven't been paying attention. They thought it was more important to wokeify the United States military than to deal with the actual external enemies we have. They thought you could reset the relationship with Putin. So all of this hurry up and pass the aid isn't out of concern for the Ukrainian men, women, and children. It's to, it's to cover their asses because they weren't ready for this when they should have been. Because, again, it's the least surprising thing 
Putin could possibly have done. What's that old saying? Your failure to plan does not constitute an emergency on my part. That's what the Democrats and Joe Biden are trying to do with Ukraine right now. They're trying to characterize something as an emergency. Who could have seen this coming that they should have seen coming? Remember, these were the adults who were going to be in charge again. Meanwhile, 43% of this country cannot get baby formula. We're having a shortage that you would expect to find in an undeveloped or underdeveloped country. A nationwide shortage of baby formula. And it turns out that that, too, should have been foreseen. It turns out that they were getting warnings last fall. In fact, the FDA was told last fall that there were issues in the industry that manufactures this formula. And there was a, a kink in the supply chain. And there had been issues because they had they had kind of downshifted the production of baby formula during the pandemic because there was less demand for it. And then as we came out of the pandemic, the birth rate went up again, and there was more demand, and they couldn't immediately ramp back up in these factories. And then they had a contamination issue in one of the major factories. But they've known since October that this was going to be an issue. So yesterday, the House Energy and Commerce Committee scheduled hearings on the baby formula shortage. The hearings are two weeks from now. So they voted inside of one day to aid Ukraine, but they told American families to wait two weeks. There is no excuse for that. None. By the way, the 58 members of the House who voted against the Ukraine aid... That's courage, because they're going to be lambasted. They're going to be called unpatriotic. They're going to be called stooges of Putin. They're going to be called all these things that they're not. I'm I'm sure every one of them, their hearts go out to the Ukrainian people, as do mine, as do yours. But they want to know what's in the bill, and they want to know why their hand is being forced. See, we're making crises out of things that should be processes, Instead of people doing their job, they're throwing their hands up in the air and going, it's an emergency, we need to act right now, emergency powers. And that's what we did with abortion. That's why we have been in a 49-year battle over abortion in this country. Because instead of legislating abortion, all of a sudden in 1973... The Supreme Court, five members of it, all men. And by the way, the Supreme Court, nothing against the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court is the elite of the elites, right? It's the ultimate in the upper crust. Supreme Court justices uh, come from the finest, most elite law schools, higher education, and um, five of them in 1973, basically issued, basically stopped political debate in its tracks, ended legislative action in its tracks, issued a complicated formula, and said, you have to accept this. It came out of nowhere. You didn't know it was coming. You didn't have any warning. You have to accept it. 
and you have nothing to say about it, you can't go to a hearing, you can't go to a meeting, you can't, you can't register your displeasure at the ballot box. That's it. And ever since then, we've been doing it with other big issues. We keep ending, short-circuiting debate that's organic and natural and democratic with court decisions. And then we're shocked that there's a backlash. We're shocked that the people rise up and go, wait a minute, this is not how it's supposed to work. Where is our voice? So we constitutionalized abortion rather than legislated abortion. And we didn't do that because the Supreme Court justices are power greedy. We did that because legislators, politicians, are cowardly. They didn't want to be involved. They didn't want to make these decisions. They didn't want to hear from you and me and, and of course, really our parents because this was 49 years ago. They didn't want to hear from the people. They didn't want to be called on the carpet. They didn't want to cast a vote that would be on the record. Now they're going to have to do that. If the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, that's exactly what they're going to have to do. And it's, it's deformed our politics ever since. Because when you tell people, this is how it is, period, no discussion, you, you shatter their idea that we are a country of the people, by the people, for the people. That we make decisions as a, as a community of voices and opinions that different values are respected and at least heard. That we might have a decision not everybody likes, but that everybody felt they had a voice in or, or, or could be a part of if they wanted to. Hey, I went and spoke at the meeting. They didn't do what I wanted, but I got heard. They know where I stand. And if I really didn't like the outcome of the meeting or the legislature, they'll be hearing from me at the ballot box. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how it used to work. That's how it should work. And that's why abortion has been so unsatisfying. That's why every big Supreme Court decision that takes matters out of our hands is so unsatisfying. And by the way, lots of Supreme Court justices and legal scholars have said, we don't want this. This is not how it is supposed to work. This is not right. So don't blame the Supreme Court. When it gets to them, they do what they have to do. They, they, they figure it out. They may be wrong. They may be wrong in taking some of these cases. They maybe should punt them back to the states. Maybe they should say, look, this isn't our area. But the real fault lies with politicians who are too cowardly to make decisions and legislate in the first place. 43% of the country can't get baby formula, and the relevant House committee has called hearings for two weeks from today. No hurry, just, you know, babies without anything to eat. Meanwhile, inside of a day, on a bill they hadn't read, members of the House were expected to approve another $40 billion in Ukraine aid. Nothing against Ukraine or the Ukrainian people, but the failure of our foreign policy elites to plan for the most predictable thing Putin possibly could have done should not constitute us forking over money and not knowing where it's going and not trying to spend our money to cover their behinds. One of the 58 no votes in the House was Congressman Chip Roy. He joins us now in the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker Line. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. That's just how I feel about it, Congressman. But good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Great to be on, Jack. I'm not sure I'd say it any differently, but it uh, 
you put it pretty well and pretty succinctly. It's it's pretty insane to get a forty billion dollar bill. Forty billion. I mean, that, that is a massive number. Uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon, and then we're expected to vote on the rule at six and vote on the bill at eight o'clock. It, it's absurd, and and um, and I wasn't going to just let it go without uh, pushing back, even though I knew it was likely to go through. I I I realize that you and the others who voted no are going to be called Putin stooges and. Right. apologists and everything else it's a very i think it's a courageous no vote to cast because i'm quite sure like all of us your heart goes out to the ukrainian people it's not that you don't uh support them in their in their efforts but clearly what's happening here is we're shoveling out all this money because we were it, we simply did not prepare for something we should have been prepared for well even more than that jack is that we, we, we've created the environment, we meaning this administration, the American uh, uh, government uh, led by President Biden, have created the situation in which Putin can prosper. Why? Because mm-hmm. we're not opening up American oil and gas, right? Mm-hmm. We're uh, going down the crazy road of chasing at windmills and solar panels and so forth. And then we're saying, oh, we're going to, uh, you know, sanction Russian oil. We're going to ban it. We're not going to import it. But all you're then doing is empowering other countries, but not American oil and gas, but you're empowering Putin in the end because we're not producing energy. So you do that, the administration, then you wonder why Putin marches in. Oh, by the way, you also abandoned Afghanistan, walk away, tail between your legs, you encourage them. Then you create this fertile landscape for Putin to act. Then you come to us and say, oh, crap, we need to go try to help Ukraine. Oh, let's wear, let's all put on blue and yellow flags and go pat ourselves on the back. And then you come to the American people and you say, oh, write another blank check of $40 billion mm-hmm. all of a sudden so that we can do what? Go throw money at the State Department. Go fund refugee resettlement programs. Go fund NGOs. Give them literally a blank check. It was just a 30-page bill. My complaint mm-hmm. wasn't the normal 2,000-page bill complaint. It was this is $40 billion with all sorts of undefined terms just tossed to the wind. Because this administration is too incompetent to figure out how to stop this before it started, like, for example, sanctioning Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which uh, Senator Cruz pushed, they rejected, and here we are. Yeah. Um, it, it is striking that there were only 50, I said 58, there were only 57 of you that could say, stand and say this. I guess it means that the others are just afraid to look like they are on the wrong side of this issue. I think that's part of it, right? They, they don't want to be seen as, like, oh, you're pro-Putin. And you're, I mean, look, all these people call me, they, oh, you hate babies, you hate old people, you hate people with illness, you hate, you know, if I dare question that what we're spending money on when we're $30.5 trillion in debt, right, then they're going to say you hate fill in the blank. In this case, I'm telling you, the people I represent in Central Texas, across the board, they do not want me coming up here and giving the administration a $40 billion unpaid for blank check to a bunch of bureaucrats to go out and continue and, frankly, foment a war we've never voted on. You've got some people saying, quote, we're at war. Well, son of a gun, I think there's this little clause in the Constitution that says we declare war. Congress is supposed to step up and declare war. Are we at war? Is this a proxy war? Well, I don't like Putin. I'd like to hip check him. But we could have done that in any number of ways prior to this. Now that we're in this situation, we shouldn't be writing a blank check. We ought to be pushing NATO to do more by NATO. I mean, the European allies in NATO. Um, and we shouldn't be writing a big blank check. On the subject of energy, we're hearing pretty dire things about diesel shortages. Oh, yeah. uh, and that is going to have a tremendous effect. It's already having an effect. It's going to have even more of an effect on the, the supply chain 
on inflation. Um, we've got this baby formula thing, which is it, what a contrast. You got to vote within 24 hours in Ukraine. You can schedule a hearing on baby formula for two weeks away. That t- that shows the American people where they stand, right? Well, this administration has not cared a whit about the American people from the border to the price of goods. Uh, they just laugh it off. It's like, oh, you, you, you can't, you gas prices, don't worry, go buy a Tesla. You're like, wait, hold on, what? You know, I, and, and they have no concept of what it means for the, the average American, right? Uh, you've got Jen Psaki just flippantly, you know, throwing Border Patrol under the bus saying they're whipping people or saying, oh, yeah, sure, go protest, go, go uh, try to, you know, influence uh, justices of the Supreme Court, even though that might violate federal law. They don't care. And in this case, the price of goods and services are going up for one very simple reason, really two. We spent $5 trillion, actually more than that now, in the last couple of years. We dumped it in the economy. Inflation is then the consequence. The second reason is we're not producing American oil and gas to drive down the price of gasoline and diesel. There are other factors. There are COVID issues. There's Russia. But we have caused the climate for rampant inflation. And now we're staring at stagflation. So basically, it's the rebirth of Jimmy Carter. Congressman, appreciate your vote. Appreciate your time with us today. Thanks for coming on. Hey, God bless, Jack. Take care. All right, 428 on KTSA. Jack Riccardi, 210-599-5555. You know, I I, um, I want to get more into this with you and with your phone calls here coming up at 210-599-5555. But on the, on the baby formula thing, there was a whistleblower last fall uh, who contacted the FDA about issues at the uh, factory in Michigan that makes the most popular, or the company that makes the, the most popular brands of baby formula, a company called Abbott Labs. And uh, they got this whistleblower uh, report in October. Uh, they did not contact the person for over two months. They didn't go out and look at the plant until the end of January. And then the baby formula that was contaminated or might have been wasn't recalled until February. In the meantime, they had also been told back in the fall, so this is separate from the whistleblower, the FDA and the Biden administration had been told, it looks like we're going to have a major crunch on baby formula because the birth rate has popped back up to normal again and they had scaled down during the pandemic. A lot of a lot of industries, a lot of businesses did that, right? That was that was the, the whole thing with toilet paper shortages and a lot of other things. You you can't you can't um easily ramp up and ramp down production when you make a decision to shut some down, bringing it back online again is not immediate. It, this is probably why it's a good idea to have some people in government that have actually worked in business because they can explain this stuff better than I can, and certainly they understand it better than these bureaucrats in D.C. do. So by last November, we were already seeing uh, shortages, higher and higher prices. Uh, by last month, uh, much bigger shortages, and now the, the price of baby formula, when you could get it, was way above even the uh, inflation rate for other things. Now you have major chains around the country uh, rationing and putting purchase, purchase limits on baby formula. And this is a pretty big deal. You can't just say to people, well, you should breastfeed because there are some children that have to have this stuff and there are some women that have not done breastfeeding and can't just suddenly start now. There's no excuse for this. If this was another country 
we'd be using Air Force uh, cargo planes to fly pallets of baby formula in. We'd be we'd be demanding that we help our brothers and sisters in Christ in these other countries. But these are American babies and American families, and they're being told to wait two weeks. It never fails with this administration. They always get the virtue signaling part right, but they get the practical stuff, the meat and potatoes stuff, the the making stuff work wrong. I have to laugh at Build Back Better. They couldn't build a Lego building, much less American infrastructure. If you can't feed American families, get the hell out of the way for people who can. I mean, you just get the feeling, right, that there are people who would know and, and have known all along that this was coming. But they're not the community organizers and the race hustlers that this administration listens to. They're not the green energy, uh, you know, prophets of doom that this administration listens to. They're not the, they're not the focus groups. They're not the people that, that, that are, that are being polled. And that's how we got to this point. And it may not affect, maybe your kids are all grown up and you haven't bought baby formula in a million years or you've never bought it. It's insane that the richest country in the world can't get this right, isn't getting it right. And its own government is saying, we'll get around to it in a couple of weeks. Uh, they were having a hearing yesterday, the the Senate... Um, uh, one of the committees in the Senate was having a hearing about how, and this is a, a, a claim that the Democrats are making, a claim that um, state restrictions on abortion, having states like Texas with restrictions on abortion, is hurting the U.S. economy. That was what they were claiming. So they had the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, there to talk about this. She's not normally somebody you would hear weigh in on abortion. And she got into an exchange with Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. I want you to hear how she is explaining abortion and then his response to Treasury Secretary Yellen. Take a listen to this, cut number seven. I'm just surprised that we find ways to weave into every facet of our lives. such such an important and painful reality for so many people to make it sound like it's just a, another 0.4% added to our labor force participation as a result of the issue of abortion just, to me, seems harsh. And well, I, I certainly don't mean to um, say what I think the effects are in a manner that's harsh. What we're talking about is um, whether or not women will have the ability um, to regulate their reproductive um, situation in ways that will enable them to plan lives that are fulfilling and satisfying for them. And one aspect of a satisfying life is being able to feel that you have the financial resources to raise a child that the children you bring into the world are wanted and that you have the ability to take care of them. In many cases, um, abortions are of teenage women, um, particularly low-income and often black, who um, 
aren't in a position to be able to care for children, have um, unexpected pregnancies, and it deprives them of the ability often to continue their education to later participate in the workforce. So there, there is a spillover into labor force participation, yeah. but, yeah. and uh, it means that children will grow up in poverty yeah. and do, do worse themselves. Thank and you. Let me, let me is, just say my time harsh. on the topic. This is I, the truth. I'll just simply say that as a guy raised by a black woman in abject poverty, I'm thankful to be here as United States Senator. He said um, of his mother, I think to myself, had it not been for her sacrifice, her perseverance, her resilience, I would not be where I am today. Referring to his mother who raised uh, her and her brother on her own, worked, raised them, took care of them, and Tim Scott sitting in the United States Senate. Um, but the, I, I couldn't get over, I don't know if this is what you heard, I, I couldn't get over hearing a um, a very wealthy older white woman explain the importance of abortion to the um, son of a young black single mother. And her explanation is that um, women like his mother need abortion because otherwise they will not be able to have good lives and their kids will have crappy lives too. Is that really the best argument? I mean, is that really the the hill you want to die on? Is that really is that really what we've reduced this to? Forget for the moment that abortion is not the only option if having a kid is not a good move for you right now. But um I I guess I just I continue to be amazed at the way we reduce this conversation. Am I the only one that, I mean, I, I can't think of it that way. I can't think of it as a labor force participation issue. I mean, she's not a very good economist, Janet Yellen, let's be honest. She didn't want to admit that inflation was coming or she couldn't see it. She called it transitory, which it clearly isn't. I doubt that she knows anything more than I do about uh, black women's success or failure vis-a-vis abortion. I, I, I just, it's, it's stunning to me that she would be lecturing him on why women like his mom needed an abortion. I guess, I guess his mom made a mistake in Janet Yellen's judgment. I guess she, I guess she blew it. She had Tim Scott. Hillary Clinton sounded off. <laughs> it's the day for, it's the day for uh, woman splaining. Uh, Hillary Clinton said uh, this on Twitter this morning: "None of us should accept a future in which our daughters and granddaughters have fewer rights than we did." Well, wouldn't our daughters and granddaughters have to be born in order to have a future with rights? I mean, you talk about taking away somebody's rights, aborting them. They're not going to have any rights. When you kill them before they're born, you take away all their rights. But I don't even believe that's true, that, that, a, that a, a young baby girl, a baby girl, not young, a baby girl born today is not growing up in a world with fewer rights 
than her mother or grandmother had. It's absurd. And by the way, why isn't Hillary Clinton worried about all kinds of rights? Why isn't she worried that this future baby girl won't have the same free speech rights or the same Second Amendment rights? I don't hear her mentioning that. She doesn't seem concerned about the possible diminution of Second Amendment rights. It's almost like they don't really know what rights mean. It's almost like they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Anyway, what do you think? 210 599 5555. And then we're going to talk a little bit about why this whole idea of having the Supreme Court decide this stuff uh, is a terrible idea, including in the opinion of many legendary judges, even some Supreme Court justices. Uh, Esteban is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Esteban, good afternoon. I saw Janet Yellen's comments flash on Facebook yesterday. There's a book called Freakonomics, and the author basically stated that. When abortion became law, you had an increase in, one, in unwanted pregnancies because women would women and men would engage in risky activity, assuming they would get an abortion, and a certain percentage of them wind up not getting an abortion. Just like the aid to families with dependent children basically destroyed the African-American family. I, I, there was horrible racism, but in the period of horrible racism, what Without the AFDC, you actually had African-American families were more intact than whites. Mm-hmm. That's right. So you have this perverse thing of incentivizing bad behavior. And so abortion has not... So we're listening to the Janet Yellens and the Hillary Clintons, who were the defenders, if not architects, of those failed policies, now tell us how it's going to be in the future. There's something wrong with that. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it... it, it it's like you had your you had your jet you had your day, you had your chance, you got it wrong. Your policies became the law of the land and were disastrous. Uh, you really should maybe stay on the bench for this one. Yep. Yeah, Esteban. Thanks for the call. It's a great point. You know, if you follow the news, if you're interested in such things, you call yourself a news junkie or a political junkie. You know, you kind of pick your issues that you're interested in. You check the headlines. Back in the day, you would have read a newspaper, listened to the evening news, and all of a sudden one day, in place of headlines and stories about debate and legislation and hearings, you get the word that five justices of the Supreme Court, these guys up in Washington, D.C. that wear black robes and are kind of on the, uh, you know, on the mountaintop, uh, have demanded that the entire country, all different faith communities, all different traditions, all different regions, uh, must accept their judgment, their settlement, on one of the most difficult, painful, moral questions imaginable. What were the odds that that would not go well? What were the odds that people would not just accept that? Now, don't get me wrong, we need a judicial branch to the government. We need a Supreme Court. But we don't need the Supreme Court ending, short-circuiting, democratic decision-making. When democratic decision-making is going on, that's not a bug, that's a feature. It may take a while, and sometimes you and I don't like the outcome. We didn't get our way, our team didn't win. But, But it's easier to stomach an end of that process that you don't like 
than to suddenly out of the blue, like a bolt of lightning, be told, this is it, no more discussion, this is how it's going to be. And on something as personal as unborn life. And there's a lot of reluctance about this, even from federal judges, even from people that serve and have served on the Supreme Court. Even the judge who wrote Roe v. Wade said at the time that, and I'm going to read this to you as a quote, on the basis of elements such as these, the appellant argues that women's right is absolute and she is entitled to terminate her pregnancy at whatever time, in whatever way, and for whatever reason she alone chooses. With this, we do not agree. That's in the decision. There is a long history of judges saying it's not a good idea for us to be your lawmakers. Hugo Black was appointed to the Supreme Court by FDR. He had been a New Deal senator from Alabama, and he served on the Supreme Court for a long time, from the 40s to the 70s. Toward the end of his life, he gave a lecture in which he said, quote, there's a tendency now to look to the judiciary to make all the major policy decisions of society under the guise of determining constitutionality. He said that in 1968. There is a tendency today to have the judiciary make all the major policy decisions. I would say abortion is a major policy decision. So you see what we're, we're dealing with here? You may feel good right now about the makeup of the Supreme Court. Oh, there's six conservatives or there's five conservatives. A few years ago, you were not so happy with it. Oh, there's five liberals. There's other people right now that are so mad at the makeup of the Supreme Court, they are threatening its members. I know you wouldn't do that, but they're doing it. But in a way, we're all right. I don't mean the threats of violence are right. But if it doesn't feel like this is how it should go, you're right. And Hugo Black would agree with you. And many famous former judges and legal scholars would agree with you. And even judges, justices rather, who were on the Supreme Court at the time would agree with you. We've done this now with a number of other issues. We've made sweeping judicial proclamations about abortion, about immigration. And it doesn't settle the issue. And the reason it doesn't settle the issue is because we weren't a part of it. We weren't involved in it. Or we at least didn't have, theoretically, the, the possibility of being involved in it. The other thing that happened with Roe v. Wade is people of faith were told to forget about their beliefs. Now, we're a religious country. We were much more so in 1973. We are, we're still a church-going country, but a far higher percentage of people in 1973 were going to church every Sunday. And so their belief about this wasn't Democratic or Republican or coming from talk radio. It was, it was Word of God stuff. And they were told, forget about that. How do you do that? How does that work? How is that supposed to work? How are the American people so, supposed to forget their most sacred beliefs? Well, the answer is they won't. They don't. They didn't. So we have warped not only this issue, but the way we make decisions about all kinds of big issues by going the, the route of 
Take it to court. Have the Supremes decide. And if we keep doing this, we will keep being unsatisfied with the results. We cannot satisfy a nation of 330 million people with five people in robes. We can't do it. Uh, we just had a little while ago, we just had the, uh, the Senate vote, which... Uh, this was Chuck Schumer saying, we're going to codify Roe v. Wade. And they did not have the 50 votes uh, to do it. It's being reported by the cable uh, channels as it failed, which, you know, if you're, if you're trying to be objective, you're not supposed to say that it failed. You're supposed to say it, there were this many votes for, this, this many votes against. But anyway, um, so they tried to... Uh, basically put into legislative action something that would uh, moot whatever the Supreme Court is going to do uh, about the Roe v. Wade decision, um, which now we think we know because of the leaked opinion. And we're going to talk about that uh, this afternoon. Um, Last night, the House approved $40 billion more. This is not $40 billion and counting. This is another $40 billion. In aid to Ukraine, the vote in the House was 368 to 57. All of the 57 were Republicans. One of them was South Texas Congressman Chip Roy. And here's what he was saying about this bill, cut number nine. Think about it, Speaker. The gentleman from Maryland talked about protecting this institution or talked about this institution, but we got a $40 billion bill at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I haven't had a chance to review the bill. My staff is pouring over the pages trying to see what's in it. You want to talk about the institution? You want to talk about standing up alongside Ukraine? Why don't we actually have a debate on the floor of the People's House instead of the garbage of getting a $40 billion bill at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Not paid for, without having any idea what's really in it, with a massive slush fund that goes to the State Department, $13 billion, $8 billion for the Economic Support Fund, $110 million for Embassy Security. We've got $40 billion that is unpaid for, and you want to sit here and lecture this body about what we're going to do or not do about standing alongside Ukraine? Why don't we talk about the American people who are hurting, the wide open borders, the inflation that's killing people, the jobs that people can't get because of the cost of goods and services in this country. Sitting here and being lectured to when I don't even have time to look at a $40 billion unpaid bill. I make a motion to adjourn. So here's what's interesting to me. I, I, I support the Ukrainian people. Absolutely. I don't know anybody who doesn't. But... Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine was the least surprising thing Vladimir Putin could do. He's even invaded Ukraine before. The reason this is all hurry up, it's an emergency, is because our political leaders haven't been paying attention. They thought it was more important to wokeify the United States military than to deal with the actual external enemies we have. They thought you could reset the relationship with Putin. So all of this hurry up and pass the aid isn't out of concern for the Ukrainian men, women, and children. It's to, it's to cover their asses because they weren't ready for this when they should have been. Because, again, it's the least surprising thing Putin could possibly have done. What's that old saying? Your failure to plan does not constitute an emergency on my part. That's what the Democrats and Joe Biden are trying to do with Ukraine right now. They're trying to characterize something as an emergency who could have seen this coming that they should have seen coming remember these were the adults 
who were going to be in charge again. Meanwhile, 43% of this country cannot get baby formula. We're having a shortage that you would expect to find in an undeveloped or underdeveloped country. A nationwide shortage of baby formula. And it turns out that that, too, should have been foreseen. It turns out that they were getting warnings last fall. In fact, the FDA was told last fall that there were issues in the industry that manufactures this formula. And there was a a kink in the supply chain. And there had been issues because they had they had kind of downshifted the production of baby formula during the pandemic because there was less demand for it. And then as we came out of the pandemic, the birth rate went up again and there was more demand and they couldn't immediately ramp back up in these factories. And then they had a contamination issue in one of the major factories. But they've known since October that this was going to be an issue. So yesterday, the House Energy and Commerce Committee scheduled hearings on the baby formula shortage. The hearings are two weeks from now. So they voted inside of one day to aid Ukraine, but they told American families to wait two weeks. There is no excuse for that. None. By the way, the 58 members of the House who voted against the Ukraine aid, that's courage. Because they're going to be lambasted. They're going to be called unpatriotic. They're going to be called stooges of Putin. They're going to be called all these things that they're not. I'm I'm sure every one of them, their hearts go out to the Ukrainian people, as do mine, as do yours. But they want to know what's in the bill. And they want to know why their hand is being forced. See, we're making crises out of things that should be processes. Instead of people doing their job, they're throwing their hands up in the air and going, it's an emergency, we need to act right now, emergency powers. And that's what we did with abortion. That's why we have been in a 49-year battle over abortion in this country. Because instead of legislating abortion, all of a sudden in 1973... The Supreme Court, five members of it, all men. And by the way, the Supreme Court, nothing against the Supreme Court, but the Supreme Court is the elite of the elites, right? It's the ultimate in the upper crust. Supreme Court justices uh, come from the finest, most elite law schools, higher education, and um, five of them in 1973, basically issued, basically stopped political debate in its tracks, ended legislative action in its tracks, issued a complicated formula, and said, you have to accept this. It came out of nowhere. You didn't know it was coming. You didn't have any warning. You have to accept it. And you have nothing to say about it. You can't go to a hearing. You can't go to a meeting. You can't, you can't register your displeasure at the ballot box. That's it. And ever since then, we've been doing it with other big issues. We keep ending, short-circuiting 
debate that's organic and natural and democratic with court decisions. And then we're shocked that there's a backlash. We're shocked that the people rise up and go, wait a minute, this is not how it's supposed to work. Where is our voice? So we constitutionalized abortion rather than legislated abortion. And we didn't do that because the Supreme Court justices are power greedy. We did that because legislators, politicians, are cowardly. They didn't want to be involved. They didn't want to make these decisions. They didn't want to hear from you and me and, and of course, really our parents, because this was 49 years ago. They didn't want to hear from the people. They didn't want to be called on the carpet. They didn't want to cast a vote that would be on the record. Now they're going to have to do that. If the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, that's exactly what they're going to have to do. And it's, it's deformed our politics ever since. Because when you tell people, this is how it is, period, no discussion, you, you shatter their idea that we are a country of the people, by the people, for the people. That we make decisions as a, as a community of voices and opinions, that different values are respected and at least heard. That we might have a decision not everybody likes, but that everybody felt they had a voice in or, or, or could be a part of if they wanted to. Hey, I went and spoke at the meeting. They didn't do what I wanted, but I got heard. They know where I stand. And if I really didn't like the outcome of the meeting or the legislature, they'll be hearing from me at the ballot box. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how it used to work. That's how it should work. And that's why abortion has been so unsatisfying. That's why every big Supreme Court decision that takes matters out of our hands is so unsatisfying and by the way lots of supreme court justices and legal scholars have said we don't want this this is not how it is supposed to work this is not right so don't blame the supreme court when it gets to them they do what they have to do they 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 figure it out they may be wrong they may be wrong in taking some of these cases they maybe should punt them back to the states. Maybe they should say, look, this isn't our area. But the real fault lies with politicians who are too cowardly to make decisions and legislate in the first place. And that's how we got to this point today. So 43% of the country can't get baby formula, and the relevant House committee has called hearings for two weeks from today. No hurry, just, you know, babies without anything to eat. Meanwhile, inside of a day, on a bill they hadn't read, members of the House were expected to approve another $40 billion in Ukraine aid. Nothing against Ukraine or the Ukrainian people, but the failure of our foreign policy elites to plan for the most predictable thing Putin possibly could have done should not constitute us forking over money and not knowing where it's going and not trying to spend our money to cover their behinds. One of the 58 no votes in the House was Congressman Chip Roy. He joins us now in the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners Newsmaker line. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. That's just how I feel about it, Congressman. But good afternoon. Welcome to the show. Great beyond, Jack. I'm not sure I'd say it any differently. You put it, uh, you put it pretty well and pretty succinctly. It's, it's pretty insane to get a $40 billion bill. $40 billion. I mean, that, that is a massive number. Uh, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and then we're expected to vote on the rule at 6 and vote on the bill at 8 o'clock. It, it's absurd. And 
and uh, and I wasn't going to just let it go without uh, pushing back, even though I knew it was likely to go through. I I, I realize that you and the others who voted no are going to be called Putin stooges and right. apologists and everything else. It's a very I think it's a courageous no vote to cast because I'm quite sure, like all of us, your heart goes out to the Ukrainian people. It's not that you don't uh, support them in their in their efforts. But clearly what's happening here is we're shoveling out all this money because we were we simply did not prepare for something we should have been prepared for. Well, even more than that, Jack, is that we, we, we've created the environment, we meaning this administration, the American uh, uh, government uh, led by President Biden, have created the situation in which Putin can prosper. Why? Because mm-hmm. we're not opening up American oil and gas, right? Mm-hmm. We're... Uh, going down the crazy road of chasing at windmills and solar panels and so forth. And then we're saying, oh, we're going to, uh, you know, sanction Russian oil. We're going to ban it. We're going to import it. But all you're then doing is empowering other countries, but not American oil and gas. But you're empowering Putin in the end because we're not producing energy. So you do that, the administration. Then you wonder why Putin marches in. Oh, by the way, you also abandon Afghanistan, walk away, tail between your legs. You encourage them. Then you create this fertile landscape for Putin to act. Then you come to us and say, oh, crap, we need to go try to help Ukraine. Oh, let's wear, let's all put on blue and yellow flags and go pat ourselves on the back. And then you come to the American people and you say, oh, write another blank check of $40 billion mm-hmm. all of a sudden so that we can do what? Go throw money at the State Department. Go fund refugee resettlement programs. Go fund NGOs. Give them literally a blank check. It was just a 30-page bill. My complaint wasn't the normal 2,000-page bill complaint. It was this is $40 billion with all sorts of undefined terms just tossed to the wind because this administration is too incompetent to figure out how to stop this before it started, like, for example, sanctioning Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which uh, Senator Cruz pushed. They rejected, and here we are. Yeah. Um, It it is striking that there were only 50, I said 58, there were only 57 of you that could stand and say this, I guess it means that the others are just afraid to look like they are on the wrong side of this issue. I think that's part of it, right? They they don't want to be seen as, oh, you're pro-Putin. and you're. I mean, look, all these people call me, they, oh, you hate babies, you hate old people, you hate people with illness, you hate, you know, if I dare question that what we're spending money on when we're $30.5 trillion in debt, right, then they're going to say you hate fill in the blank. In this case, I'm telling you, the people I represent in Central Texas, across the board, they do not want me coming up here and giving the administration a $40 billion unpaid-for blank check to a bunch of bureaucrats to go out and continue and, frankly, foment a war we've never voted on. You've got some people saying, quote, we're at war. Well, son of a gun, I think there's this little clause in the Constitution that says we declare war. Congress is supposed to step up and declare war. Are we at war? Is this a proxy war? Well, I don't like Putin. I'd like to hip check him, but we could have done that in any number of ways prior to this. Now that we're in this situation, we shouldn't be writing a blank check. We ought to be pushing NATO to do more. By NATO, I mean the European allies in NATO, um, and we shouldn't be writing a big blank check. On the subject of energy, we're hearing pretty dire things about diesel shortages, uh, and that is going to have a tremendous effect. It's already having an effect. It's going to have even more of an effect on the, the... supply chain, on inflation. Um, we've got this baby formula thing, which is, it, what a contrast. you got to vote within 24 hours in Ukraine. You can schedule a hearing on baby formula for two weeks away. 
that tells, that shows the American people where they stand, right? Well, this administration has not cared a whit about the American people from the border to the price of goods. Uh, they just laugh it off. It's like, oh, you, you can't, you gas prices. Don't worry, go buy a Tesla. You're like, wait, hold on, what? You know, and, and they have no concept of what it means for the, the average American, right? Uh, you've got Jen Psaki just flippantly, you know, throwing Border Patrol under the bus saying they're whipping people or saying, oh, yeah, sure, go protest. Go, go uh, try to, you know, influence uh, justices of the Supreme Court, even though that might violate federal law. They don't care. And in this case, the price of goods and services are going up for one very simple reason, really two. We spent $5 trillion, actually more than that now, in the last couple of years. We dumped it in the economy. Inflation is then the consequence. The second reason is we're not producing American oil and gas to drive down the price of gasoline and diesel. There are other factors. There are COVID issues. There's Russia. But we have caused the climate for rampant inflation. And now we're staring at stagflation. So basically, it's the rebirth of Jimmy Carter. Congressman, appreciate your vote. Appreciate your time with us today. Thanks for coming on. Hey, God bless, Jack. Take care. All right, 428 on KTSA, Jack Riccardi, 210-599-5555. You know, I I, um, I want to get more into this with you and with your phone calls here coming up at 210-599-5555. But on the, on the baby formula thing, there was a whistleblower last fall uh, who contacted the FDA about issues at the uh, factory in Michigan that makes the most popular, or the company that makes the, the most popular brands of baby formula, a company called Abbott Labs. And uh, they got this whistleblower uh, report in October. Uh, they did not contact the person for over two months. They didn't go out and look at the plant until the end of January. And then the baby formula that was contaminated, or might have been, wasn't recalled until February. In the meantime, they had also been told back in the fall, so this is separate from the whistleblower, the FDA and the Biden administration had been told, it looks like we're going to have a major crunch on baby formula because the birth rate has popped back up to normal again, and they had scaled down during the pandemic. A lot of a lot of industries, a lot of businesses did that, right? That was that was the, the whole thing with toilet paper shortages and a lot of other things. You you can't you can't um, easily ramp up and ramp down production when you make a decision to shut some down. Bringing it back online again is not immediate. It, this is probably why it's a good idea to have some people in government that have actually worked in business because they can explain this stuff better than I can, and certainly they understand it better than these bureaucrats in D.C. do. So by last November, we were already seeing uh, shortages, higher and higher prices. Uh, by last month, uh, much bigger shortages, and now the, the price of baby formula, when you could get it, was way above even the uh, inflation rate for other things. Now you have major chains around the country uh, rationing and putting purchase, purchase limits on baby formula. And this is a pretty big deal. You can't just say to people, well, you should breastfeed because there are some children that have to have this stuff and there are some women that have not done breastfeeding and can't just suddenly start now. There's no excuse for this. If this was another country, we'd be using Air Force uh, cargo planes to fly pallets of baby formula in. We'd be We'd be demanding that we help our brothers and sisters in Christ in these other countries, but these are American babies and American families, and they're being told to wait two weeks. 
It never fails with this administration. They always get the virtue signaling part right, but they get the practical stuff, the meat and potatoes stuff, the the making stuff work wrong. I have to laugh at Build Back Better. They couldn't build a Lego building, much less American infrastructure. If you can't feed American families, get the hell out of the way for people who can I mean, you just get the feeling, right, that there are people who would know and, and have known all along that this was coming. But they're not the community organizers and the race hustlers that this administration listens to. They're not the green energy, uh, you know, prophets of doom that this administration listens to. They're not the, they're not the focus groups. They're not the people that, 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 are, that are being polled. And that's how we got to this point. And it may not affect, maybe your kids are all grown up and you haven't bought baby formula in a million years or you've never bought it. It's insane that the richest country in the world can't get this right, isn't getting it right. And its own government is saying, we'll get around to it in a couple of weeks. Uh, they were having a hearing yesterday, the the Senate um uh, one of the committees in the Senate was having a hearing about how, and this is a, a, a claim that the Democrats are making, a claim that um, state restrictions on abortion, having states like Texas with restrictions on abortion, is hurting the U.S. economy. That was what they were claiming. So they had the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, there to talk about this. She's not normally somebody you would hear weigh in on abortion. And she got into an exchange with Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. I want you to hear how she is explaining abortion and then his response to Treasury Secretary Yellen. Take a listen to this cut number seven. I'm just surprised that we find ways to weave into every facet of our lives. such such an important and painful reality for so many people to make it sound like it's just another 0.4% added to our labor force participation as a result of the issue of abortion just, to me, seems harsh. Well, I I certainly don't mean to um, say what I think the effects are in a manner that's harsh. What we're talking about is um, whether or not women will have the ability um, to regulate their reproductive um, situation in ways that will enable them to plan lives that are fulfilling and satisfying for them. And one aspect of a satisfying life is being able to feel that you have the financial resources to raise a child that the children you bring into the world are wanted and that you have the ability to take care of them. In many cases, um, abortions are of teenage women, um, particularly low-income and often black, who um, aren't in a position to be able to care for children, have um, unexpected pregnancies, and it deprives them of the ability often to continue their education to later participate in the workforce. So there, there is a 
spill over into labor force participation. Yeah. But yeah. and uh, it means the children will grow up in poverty yeah. and do do worse themselves. Thank and you. Let me let is, me just say my time on the topic. This is I, the truth. I'll just simply say that as a guy raised by a black woman in abject poverty, I'm thankful to be here as United States Senator. He said um, of his mother, I think to myself, had it not been for her sacrifice, her perseverance, her resilience, I would not be where I am today, referring to his mother who raised uh, her and her brother on her own, worked, raised them, took care of them, and Tim Scott sitting in the United States Senate. Um, But I I couldn't get over, I don't know if this is what you heard, I I couldn't get over hearing a... um, a very wealthy, older, white woman explain the importance of abortion to the um, son of a young, black, single mother. And her explanation is that um, women like his mother need abortion because otherwise they will not be able to have good lives and their kids will have crappy lives too. Is that really the best argument? I mean, is that really the the hill you want to die on? Is that really is that really what we've reduced this to? Forget for the moment that abortion is not the only option if having a kid is not a good move for you right now. But um I I guess I just I continue to be amazed at the way we reduce this conversation. Am I the only one that, I mean, I I can't think of it that way. I can't think of it as a labor force participation issue. I mean, she's not a very good economist, Janet Yellen, let's be honest. She didn't want to admit that inflation was coming or she couldn't see it. She called it transitory, which it clearly isn't. I doubt that she knows anything more than I do about uh, black women's success or failure vis-a-vis abortion. I, I, I just, it's, it's stunning to me that she would be lecturing him on why women like his mom needed an abortion. I guess, I guess his mom made a mistake in Janet Yellen's judgment. I guess she, I guess she blew it. She had Tim Scott. Hillary Clinton sounded off. <laughs> it's the day for, it's the day for uh, woman splaining. Uh, Hillary Clinton said uh, this on Twitter this morning: "None of us should accept a future in which our daughters and granddaughters have fewer rights than we did." Well, wouldn't our daughters and granddaughters have to be born in order to have a future with rights? I mean, you talk about taking away somebody's rights, aborting them. They're not going to have any rights. When you kill them before they're born, you take away all their rights. But I don't even believe that's true, that, that, a, that a, a young baby girl, a baby girl, not young, a baby girl born today is not growing up in a world with fewer rights than her mother or grandmother had. It's absurd. And by the way, why isn't Hillary Clinton worried about all kinds of rights? Why isn't she worried that this future baby girl won't have the same free speech rights or the same Second Amendment rights? I don't hear her mentioning that. She doesn't seem concerned about the 
possible diminution of Second Amendment rights. It's almost like they don't really know what rights mean. It's almost like they don't know what the hell they're talking about. Anyway, what do you think? 210-599-5555. And then we're going to talk a little bit about why this whole idea of having the Supreme Court decide this stuff uh, is a terrible idea, including in the opinion of many legendary judges, even some Supreme Court justices. Uh, Esteban is on 550 and 1071 KTSA. Esteban, good afternoon. I saw Janet Yellen's comment flash on Facebook yesterday. There's a book called Freakonomics, and the author basically stated that when abortion became law, you had an increase in, one, in unwanted pregnancies because women would, women and men would engage in risky activity, assuming they would get an abortion, and a certain percentage of them wind up not getting an abortion. Just like the aid to families with dependent children basically destroyed the African-American family out I, there was horrible racism, but in the period of horrible racism, without the AFDC, you actually had African-American families were more intact than whites. Mm-hmm. That's right. So you have this perverse thing of incentivizing bad behavior. And so abortion has not... So we're listening to the Janet Yellens and the Hillary Clintons, who were the defenders, if not architects, of those failed policies, now tell us how it's going to be in the future. There's something wrong with that. Yep. Yeah, I mean it, it. It it's like you had your you had your jet you had your day, you had your chance, you got it wrong. Your policies became the law of the land and were disastrous. Uh, you really should maybe stay on the bench for this one. Yep. Yeah, Esteban, thanks for the call. It's a great point. Two ten five nine nine fifty five fifty five. So imagine a, a an alternate. Reality. Imagine in 1973, there's no Roe v. Wade. It doesn't go to the Supreme Court. They don't have that ruling. What was going on before that that would have continued to go on these last 49 years? And where would we therefore be now in terms of our thinking, opinions, what we know about abortion, what we know about uh, life inside the womb with, with the imagery that we have today that we didn't have 49 years ago. You know, if you follow the news, if you're interested in such things, you call yourself a news junkie or a political junkie, you know, you kind of pick your issues that you're interested in, you check the headlines. Back in the day, you would have read a newspaper, listened to the evening news, and all of a sudden one day, in place of headlines and stories about debate, and legislation and hearings, you get the word that five justices of the Supreme Court, these guys up in Washington, D.C. that wear black robes and are kind of on the, uh, you know, on the mountaintop, uh, have demanded that the entire country, all different faith communities, all different traditions, all different regions, uh, must accept their judgment, their settlement on one of the most Difficult, painful, moral questions imaginable. What were the odds that that would not go well? What were the odds that people would not just accept that? Now, don't get me wrong. We need a judicial branch to the government. We need a Supreme Court. But we don't need the Supreme Court ending, short-circuiting, 
democratic decision-making. When democratic decision-making is going on, that's not a bug, that's a feature. It may take a while, and sometimes you and I don't like the outcome. We didn't get our way, our team didn't win. But, but it's easier to stomach an end of that process that you don't like than to suddenly, out of the blue, like a bolt of lightning, be told, this is it, no more discussion, this is how it's going to be. And on something as personal as unborn life. And there's a lot of reluctance about this, even from federal judges, even from people that serve and have served on the Supreme Court. Even the judge who wrote Roe v. Wade said at the time that, and I'm going to read this to you as a quote, on the basis of elements such as these, the appellant argues that women's right is absolute and she is entitled to terminate her pregnancy at whatever time in whatever way and for whatever reason she alone chooses. With this, we do not agree. That's in the decision. There is a long history of judges saying it's not a good idea for us to be your lawmakers. Hugo Black was appointed to the Supreme Court by FDR. He had been a New Deal senator from Alabama, and he served on the Supreme Court for a long time, from the 40s to the 70s. Toward the end of his life, he gave a lecture in which he said, quote, there's a tendency now to look to the judiciary to make all the major policy decisions of society under the guise of determining constitutionality. He said that in 1968. There is a tendency today to have the judiciary make all the major policy decisions. I would say abortion is a major policy decision. So you see what we're, we're dealing with here? You may feel good right now about the makeup of the Supreme Court. Oh, there's six conservatives or there's five conservatives. A few years ago, you were not so happy with it. Oh, there's five liberals. There's other people right now that are so mad at the makeup of the Supreme Court, they are threatening its members. I know you wouldn't do that, but they're doing it. But in a way, we're all right. I don't mean the threats of violence are right. But if it doesn't feel like this is how it should go, you're right. And Hugo Black would agree with you. And many famous former judges and legal scholars would agree with you. And even judges, justices rather, who were on the Supreme Court at the time would agree with you. We've done this now with a number of other issues. We've made sweeping judicial proclamations about abortion, about immigration. And it doesn't settle the issue. And the reason it doesn't settle the issue is because we weren't a part of it. We weren't involved in it. Or we at least didn't have theoretically the the possibility of being involved in it. The other thing that happened with Roe v. Wade is people of faith were told to forget about their beliefs. Now, we're a religious country. We were much more so in 1973. We are, we're still a church-going country, but a far higher percentage of people in 1973 were going to church every Sunday. And so their belief about this wasn't Democratic or Republican or coming from talk radio. It was, it was Word of God stuff. And they were told, forget about that. How do you do that? How does that work? How is that supposed to work? 
How are the American people supposed to forget their most sacred beliefs? Well, the answer is they won't. They don't. They didn't. So we have warped not only this issue, but the way we make decisions about all kinds of big issues by going the the route of take it to court. Have the Supremes decide. And if we keep doing this, we will keep being unsatisfied with the results. We cannot satisfy a nation of 330 million people with five people in robes. We can't do it. 210-599-5555. We um, talked with Congressman Chip Roy this afternoon about the fact that the House voted last night a $40 billion Ukraine aid bill. They uh, got the bill in the late afternoon yesterday, and they passed it out of the House 368 to 57 that same night. Don't say nothing gets done in Washington. Don't say politicians can't move quickly. When it's about Ukraine, there is no shortage of speed, efficiency, urgency, and no shortage of money. Meanwhile, back here at the ranch, we're watching what almost seems like kind of a slow-motion train wreck with this um, shortage of infant formula. Uh, The problem has been brewing for months. If you have a baby, you know this, you've known it for months. The public is only just now kind of realizing or hearing uh, what's, what's going on. And there are people who are not political, not activists, not perhaps people that have never really spoken out on anything before, saying, um, we, we don't know what to do here. I mean, what, what, does anybody have any answers or what, what are we supposed to do? The government is saying, don't make your own. Don't substitute. It can be dangerous. The wealthiest, most capable, most productive nation on earth came up with $40 billion out of thin air for Ukraine. And I'm not, nothing against the Ukrainians. They seem like wonderful people. But why is it we can, we can move so quickly on that and with no sense of urgency on our own people? And I'm not even saying it has to be a choice between one or the other. Why aren't the needs of the American people as urgent, as um, as seemingly interesting to the people in charge as are the needs of people in other countries. You know, it reminds me of, um, I'm not going to name any names, but maybe you've known somebody like this. I once knew a woman who, um, if anyone she knew, even casually, needed anything she would drop everything and go and get it for them bring it to them so she developed a reputation as sort of a saint-like figure she was so wonderful oh she's the best but her own family got the back of her hand her own she didn't have time for them she ignored what was right under her nose I won't say who it is, somebody I know very well. 
but it it's it sort of reminds me of our own government, our own leaders right now. If there is a need in the world, they're all over it. If there is need at home, well, maybe you made some bad choices. <laughs> maybe you shouldn't have had a kid. Why'd you have a kid? Then you wouldn't be worried about baby formula. We're trying to solve that for you. And if you say anything about it, or you critique it, you're accused of pouncing on the Democrats. You're accused of exploiting the problem. No, well, no. The, the story is they're screwing up. story is not that we've noticed it. The story is that they're doing it. 210-599-5555. So we're going to talk about that. And then um, the the whole thing with the abortion decision that's coming from the Supreme Court that's now the biggest non-surprise in history, right? We, we apparently now know what they're going to do, thanks to the leak. Seems unlikely that what was leaked will not be in some form or fashion the final decision of the Supreme Court. You may be very... Uh, anticipatory about that you may you may be thinking i've waited i've waited half a century for this or i've been waiting a long time for this i'm glad thank god that trump got barrett and gorsuch on the court and kavanaugh on the court but here's the thing here's the thing i hate to rain on your parade but whether you like or dislike the next supreme court decision on abortion or the previous ones in 73 and 92 if you step back, this kind of thing should never be decided at the Supreme Court. Because it's a big, complicated uh, decision with vectors of politics and science and religion. And it can't be reduced to a constitutional question. It's bigger than that. The Supreme Court is for constitutional questions. Back in the um, 1930s, there was a Supreme Court justice named Harlan Stone. He was a great legal scholar. He had been a uh, uh, he had been Attorney General, and he came up with a famous or infamous um, set of rules for when the Supreme Court should be looking at an issue. If it violated a specific provision of the Constitution, if it interfered with political processes like somebody was being prevented from voting, or if it discriminated against a specific minority or group of people, So if it violated something in the Constitution that's actually written in the Constitution, if it prevented you from participating in politics, or if it was a law or rule that clearly was unfair to one minority group or one group of Americans, equal treatment under the law being one of our hallmarks. Those were the only things. But for anything that could be processed and decided and debated and argued over and compromised on in a legislature, 
It belonged in a legislature. It didn't belong at the Supreme Court. It didn't belong in the court. And there were many, many times over the years that the Supreme Court ruled on a state law and said, look, we don't know why they made this law, or we don't think this is a very good law, or we think this is kind of a crazy law, I'm paraphrasing. But if you have an issue with it, or if the people in the state are unhappy about it, they have a direct remedy. They go vote. They, they show up. They go to the meeting. They raise their voice. And isn't that what we are kind of known for? That's kind of our groove as Americans, right? We go to meetings, school board meetings, town meetings, planning meetings. We have rallies. We have protests. We have, um, you know, your turn to speak at city council. And it's messy, and it takes time. And, of course, it doesn't make everybody happy at the end, no matter what gets decided and how it gets decided. There's winners and losers. But even if you're the loser, you can say, well, I I was heard, they heard me, or I got my say, or we came close, or we'll get them next time, or let's go elect some new state reps and senators so we can change this thing and fix it. But when you decide something at the Supreme Court, there's a kind of frustrating distance. You know, who are these people? And you can say anything you want about them. Well, they're all Catholic. They're all Ivy League. They're all men. They're all white. They're all this. They're all that. They were appointed by Republicans. They were appointed by Democrats. It's, it's unsatisfying. And then on top of that, there's a finality to it. It's the Supreme Court. There isn't a higher court. Now, the Supreme Court can can reverse a ruling, and it has, has had to do so many times. It may be about to do so. But you see the difference between the democratic process and the kind of distorted, warped, abrupt way of handling it at the Supreme Court? And and abortion doesn't fall into Harlan Stone's test. Not that his test is official. It was just one man's opinion. But it, it doesn't violate a specific provision of the Constitution. So states can make laws about abortion. That doesn't violate the Constitution. Remember, even the Roe v. Wade decision admitted that there wasn't a right to abortion in the Constitution. They had to imagine that it was implied by other rights. It doesn't interfere with the political process. Actually, by ruling in the Supreme Court, they short-circuited our ability to vote and debate. And it doesn't discriminate against a specific minority of people. So what do you think? 210-599-5555. I'm, I'm here to tell you, even if the decision is the, is the one you're waiting for or the one you like, it won't satisfy. We will be no more resolved than we were in 1973. There will be one difference, which is if it goes back to the legislatures, we will finally have it in the right place. But then that will be the beginning of a long, drawn-out battle. And politicians will have to make decisions and go on the record, and they hate that, so they'll try very hard not to. But at least it'll be in the right arena, I think. This is just what I think. Later in this hour, the results on the JR poll. 
We're talking about uh, the baby formula story and the supply chain. A lot of what's driving shortages and and, uh, outages is this um, green energy hysteria. I really think that's how we're going to look back at this period when they write the history. Global warming hysteria, climate hysteria. And we're only, only at the beginning of this, I hate to tell you, but things like a shortage here, a shortage there. That that's the, the the real the real pain is a ways off. I was reading a story. Uh, this is out of Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has just passed some very stringent climate emission targets, and in order to meet them, according to the London Guardian, Northern Ireland will have to lose more than a million sheep and cattle. They will have to have a massive reduction in farm animals in order for the farming sector to hit its net zero carbon emissions by 2050 and reduce methane emissions. So more than 500,000 cattle, more than 700,000 sheep would have to be lost permanently to meet those targets. And those cuts need to come soon in order to meet the 2050 target. So they're saying, well, the farmers just need to switch from livestock to grain. The problem with that is, around the world, pretty much anywhere there's land where you can grow crops, people already are. Where people are raising livestock around the world, predominantly that means it's land that won't support crop growing. And that's the case in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has a lot of land that's good for cattle and sheep, not a lot of land that's good for growing food. And that's why it has sorted itself out that way. I mean, that makes sense, right? People are doing with the land what the land will allow them to do. If somebody who doesn't understand that or doesn't care comes along and issues edicts and guidelines and targets, and you do away with the cows and the sheep and the pigs, you're basically doing away with agriculture in Northern Ireland. You can say you're just changing it, but that's on paper. In the meantime, people still have to eat. The people who set the targets don't care. I mean, I'm sorry, but they don't. And so you're going to have a catastrophe for the people in that sector, but then eventually people that have never thought about where their food comes from will start to feel the pain. And, of course, by the time it gets to the people who aren't directly involved but are now indirectly feeling the pain, there'll be plenty of time for the politicians, whoever they are at that point, to invent a story and create a scapegoat. And you know they will, right? I wonder who the Putin of 2050 will be. I wonder who will be blaming then. We won't be blaming him. He'll be, he'll be in the ground. But you see how this works, right? By the time the pain is felt by people who are not directly involved in the production of food or the transportation of goods, you can make up stuff. Oh, there'll be some dictator somewhere. There'll be some bad guy somewhere. There'll be some evil billionaire somewhere. Elon Musk the third or somebody, you know, somebody to blame. 
Now, you would think that in a democracy, which Northern Ireland is, like the United States is, you would think in a democracy, people won't really go through with this. People will wise up. Somebody will warn them. There are voices warning them now. There are voices warning us now. Um, So the, the thing we've always been able to count on is that in a government of the people, by the people, for the people, the people won't do this kind of thing to themselves. So you can have, like, you know, mass starvation in Mao's China or Stalin's Russia, but people had no say. We have a say. We should have a huge advantage over this, over them. It comes back to what we were talking about with do you go to court or do you go to Congress? Do you go to a, a, a Supreme Court or do you go to the state legislature? In one place, you really don't have any voice. I mean, I know, the, the yeah, well, I, you elect a president, the president appoints the justices, the Congress, the Senate approves the justice, but you really don't have a you really don't have a voice in that. It's, it's very, it's like three times removed. The legislative debate, you can go to your state capitol. You can speak at the hearing. You can buttonhole your rep. You can, you can catch them when they're having their, their local town hall meeting. You can run into them at the grocery store. You get to vote for them every couple of years. Your vote actually counts. See the difference? If we do this to ourselves, it'll probably be because we never had a say in it to begin with. And that's why it's always better if we do. I, I, I realize that people can do some crazy and stupid things. We tell these stories all the time. And even collectively, people can do some crazy things. You know, we've had some elections that you're like, what were people thinking? But if you look at our whole history, when we're deciding, when we're involved, when it's us, we do very well. When we're not, the fighting never stops. The the anguish never ends. We're never satisfied. Supreme Court decisions on big issues never satisfy. USA News Time 638. We're going to see how you voted on the Fonz in our Stevens Roofing JR poll here coming up. Uh, President Trump today, I'm sorry, President Biden today referred to President Trump as, quote, the great MAGA king. Uh, yesterday, the day before, he was referring to ultra MAGA. I, you know what? I think we have found Joe Biden's true calling. He should be the slogan master for the Trump team. Ultra MAGA is brilliant. I love that. I'd wear that. And the great MAGA king, do you have any idea how much Trump is going to love that? <laughs> I mean, he'll have a crown made in no time. 210-599-5555. Boy, 
For a guy with several houses, Donald Trump lives rent-free inside of a lot of people's heads, doesn't he? I don't know if I've ever seen anybody who lived rent-free in so many people's heads. And um, I don't know what they'll do without him. I just know that they will find somebody else. When, when he's no longer around to blame or fixate on, there'll be somebody else. That's why I was saying, when, when we, it, it, God forbid, if we go down this road of climate hysteria and we're out of everything and the grids are blinking on and off like Christmas lights, you, you will have, there will be a scapegoat. It won't be, it won't be the climatologist saying, oh, we were wrong. We didn't get this right. We didn't plan correctly. Turns out we can't all drive electric cars. That doesn't work. They'll have somebody to blame. I thought this was interesting. Um, Nature, the publication Nature, which has been a pretty friendly place for climate change hysteria over the years, very well respected, they are sounding an alarm. And it goes like this. They think that the climate scare tactics have been taken too far. Quote, this is from Nature. Too many climate researchers are making unrealistically dire projections about the future consequences of man-made climate change based on computer models that run way too hot. That's what they said. They're worried, I won't read you the whole thing, But they're worried that if you keep predicting things with great specificity that don't happen, and that's already been going on for years, we've got 50 years of predictions that have not come true, people are not going to believe you. And because nature wants you to believe in man-made climate change, they are begging these activists and activist scientists, dial it back. You know, I think a lot of people lost faith in models with COVID. Do you remember in the early days of COVID, one of the great storylines, or, or not great, but one of the predominant storylines was the Imperial College model, the University of Washington model. Those were two of the most prominent ones. And I get the need for modeling, and I don't disrespect people to do it, but they need to respect the fact that oftentimes they're wrong. And I don't dispute that the climate is changing. I know that it is. It it has been, and it will continue to, and we think, in fact, that it always has. Um, I, I, I can recognize, as I'm sure you can, the weather is different now than it was when we were kids. But, so you tell me the climate's changing, I believe you. You don't even need to convince me. You try to tell me it's all doom and gloom and the oceans are going to wash over our heads in eight years. I don't believe you. I don't believe you because there's 50 years of these predictions being wrong. I don't believe you because your models are wrong. I don't believe you because I know that you're telling me this in order to get me to do these things you really want me to do or give up things or buy things or change. And, and it's just a lever. So what the nature commentary is trying to get them to do is knock it off. 
And the only thing I would disagree with in their commentary is they should, they should have written it a long time ago. I think they're a little late. I think a lot of people have lost their faith in this stuff. But I, I don't know if you remember, we had a um, uh, we talked about a book a while back called Unchanged by a former climate scientist from the Obama administration. And his premise is uh, along these lines, that there needs to be a humility and a realis- a, 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 an acceptance of, hey, we've gotten a lot of things wrong. Let's pull back and talk about what we know about, stop taking guesses, stop making crazy predictions, and and not tell people to do things that are counter to their own well-being. Because what are we saving the planet for, if not for our, our ability to live on it and thrive on it and our children, right? So when you tell people, can't have air conditioning, can't have cars, they're going to be like, no, I'm not, I'm not going back in time. If you tell me how to do things a little differently, that it's smarter and cleaner, I'll do that. But if you're telling me I just got to give up my modern life and live like it's the 18th century while you and the elites continue to have all your things. No, I'm not doing that. So that was his argument. I think it was a good argument. But I think they feel like they need that scare train. You know, they got to keep that scare train on the tracks. It's what's made the subject sexy, right? The scare train is how you get rock stars and actresses and, you know, in on it. And imagine if you're some white lab coat science nerd with a pocket protector and all your life is just test tubes and graphs and, you know, I mean, you like what you do, but it's pretty boring. And then all of a sudden, Lady Gaga or Bono or John Kerry, well, maybe not John Kerry, is standing by your side saying, hey, everybody, listen to this guy or gal. That's intoxicating stuff. So they've figured out how to get that. It's going to be very hard for them to give it up. Maybe impossible. Probably, as it turns out, impossible. The great MAGA king on the JR poll powered by Stevens Roofing because of the news today that actor Henry Winkler has a book deal to write his memoirs. 76-year-old actor will publish in 2024 the story of his life, including his most famous role as the Fonz on the sitcom Happy Days. We asked, was anyone cooler than the Fonz back in the day? I mean, was anyone? Here's how it came out. 83% said no. No one was cooler. 17% said yes. I'd be curious to know who people would think was cooler in in that period, at that time. Who was cooler than the Fonz? (laughs) I did have a couple of people say Vinnie Barbarino. I don't know about that. I'm sorry, but no. He was... In, but he wasn't cool. I mean, there were catchphrases and stuff, but he was kind of a dork, right? He's kind of, I mean, forgive my language, he's kind of a jackass, right? 
the Fonz was not only cool, but he was like smooth, right? Until he jumped the shark. But we all have our moments. Thanks to everybody that voted. New JR poll tomorrow at 4. You can find it anytime at KTSA.com. You can find our whole show anytime uh, on demand at KTSA.com. Um, mentioned this earlier. The uh, Senate uh, voted this afternoon uh, on a, uh abortion bill that Chuck Schumer said was necessary because of the leaked pre-draft Supreme Court opinion of Justice Alito. So he made the Senate go on the record. And the vote was 49 for the Schumer bill and 51 against. And the, the, the shift was Joe Manchin, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, who voted with the Republicans. And it's what Joe Manchin said that tells you everything you need to know about this vote. He said he voted no because it was an expansion of Roe v. Wade. It's called the Women's Health Protection Act. It wasn't codification of Roe v. Wade, said Manchin, about his own party's bill. He said it's an expansion. Because Roe v. Wade put curbs, put limits, right? This was a bill, and I'm telling you this now because I don't know if the if others in the media will or not. This was a bill that said abortion up to birth. No exceptions, no excuses. Any any unborn baby up to birth, at the moment of birth, can be aborted. 49 Democratic senators are on the record supporting that. I'm not telling anybody what to do or how to vote. I'm just, you're on the record. You're for that. You said yes to that. You didn't say, let's keep it rare and safe. and You didn't say, it's a tragedy, but... You said anytime, anywhere, anybody, right up until birth. Yes, put me down for that. I hope people will remember that. I don't know what the I don't know where the the, the middle is in this country. I don't know I don't know how people are going to react to this. I, I I suspect that politicians and commentators and people in my business probably have over um, overestimated how um, how much this is on people's minds. I don't mean to say that it's not important. I know you know it's important, but people have bigger, more pressing uh, issues. But if this is something politicians want to be proud of, if this is something that they want to wear around like a like a badge of honor, if this is something, if this is an issue that they want to make a signature issue, hey, I voted yes. I was in favor of the Women's Health Whatever Protection Restoration Act. Just know what it was. Joe Manchin said, I know what it is, and I can't I cannot vote for that. So we'll see. But see, pretty soon, if if this goes the way I think it's gonna go, your Texas House of Representatives, your Texas Senators, 
They'll all have to cast votes, multiple votes, on the record about this issue. And i got to tell you something. I think that's going to be a sticky one for people on both sides. I really do. I think there are people that like to say they're pro-law. I'm conservative, you know, but may not want to be pinned down to specifics. You've heard how many times I've struggled with people on the air, candidates and people in office. You try to pin them down on the word conservative, you can't do it. Oh, I can't hear your question. <laughs> what? You're breaking up, Jack. And then I think there's a lot of people who want to have left-wing, you know, uh, credentials, cred. But they also know they represent people with a strong, maybe religious faith or traditional views about life and when it begins. And they are also going to struggle having to go on the record. So it's going to be very messy and complicated, which is exactly how big decisions are supposed to be made. Hope you have a great night. Remember, our show is on demand at KTSA.com and back here live at 4 tomorrow. Okay, if you had a daughter, would you let her go out with somebody like you? Of course not. There is nobody like me. Hey!